Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we think beyond the fears of a world in which work and the ability for millions to support themselves financially through work is lost to automation and artificial intelligence, because that is only a capitalist future in which the benefits of technological advancement are hoarded by the already wealthy. Today, we imagine a different path. Sources today include the book Inventing the Future, Novara Media, Second Thought, One Dime, and Futurology, with additional members-only clips from Novara Media. Where did the future go? For much of the 20th century, the future held sway over our dreams. On the horizons of the political left a vast assortment of emancipatory visions gathered, often springing from the conjunction of popular political power and the liberating potential of technology. From predictions of new worlds of leisure, to Soviet-era cosmic communism, to Afro-futurist celebrations of the synthetic and diasporic nature of black culture, to post-gender dreams of radical feminism, the popular imagination of the left envisaged societies vastly superior to anything we dream of today. Through popular political control of new technologies, we would collectively transform our world for the better. Today, on one level, these dreams appear closer than ever. The technological infrastructure of the 21st century is producing the resources by which a very different political and economic system could be achieved. Machines are accomplishing tasks that were unimaginable a decade ago. The internet and social media are giving a voice to billions who previously went unheard, bringing global participative democracy closer than ever to existence. Open-source designs, copyleft creativity, and 3D printing all portend a world where the scarcity of many products might be overcome. New forms of computer simulation could rejuvenate economic planning and give us the ability to direct economies rationally in unprecedented ways. The newest wave of automation is creating the possibility for huge swathes of boring and demeaning work to be permanently eliminated. Clean energy technologies make possible virtually limitless and environmentally sustainable forms of power production. And new medical technologies not only enable a longer, healthier life, but also make possible new experiments with gender and sexual identity. Many of the classic demands of the left, for less work, for an end to scarcity, for economic democracy, for the production of socially useful goods, and for the liberation of humanity, are materially more achievable than at any other point in history. Yet, for all the glossy sheen of our technological era, we remain bound by an old and obsolete set of social relations. We continue to work long hours, commuting further, to perform tasks that feel increasingly meaningless. Our jobs have become more insecure, our pay has stagnated, and our debt has become overwhelming. We struggle to make ends meet, to put food on the table, to pay the rent or mortgage, and as we shuffle from job to job, we reminisce about pensions and struggle to find affordable childcare. Automation renders us unemployed and stagnant wages devastate the middle class, while corporate profits surge to new heights. The glimmers of a better future are trampled and forgotten under the pressures of an increasingly precarious and demanding world. And each day, we return to work as normal, exhausted, anxious, stressed and frustrated. At a planetary level, things appear even more ominous. The breakdown of the global climate continues unabated, 
and the ongoing fallout from the economic crisis has led governments to embrace the paralyzing death spiral of austerity. Buffeted by imperceptible and abstract powers, we feel incapable of evading or controlling the tidal pulsions of economic, social and environmental forces. But how are we to change this? All around us, it seems that the political systems, movements and processes that dominated the last hundred years are no longer able to bring about genuinely transformative change. Instead, they have forced us onto an endless treadmill of misery. Electoral democracy lies in remarkable disrepair. Center-left political parties have been hollowed out and sapped of any popular mandate. Their corpses stumble on as vehicles for careerist ambitions. Radical political movements bloom promisingly but are quickly snuffed out by exhaustion and repression. Organized labor has seen its power systematically taken apart, leaving it sclerotic and incapable of anything more than feeble resistance. Yet, in the face of these calamities, today's politics remains stubbornly beset by a lack of new ideas. Neoliberalism has held sway for decades, and social democracy exists largely as an object of nostalgia. As crises gather force and speed, politics withers and retreats. In this paralysis of the political imaginary, the future has been cancelled. Under the sway of folk political thinking, the most recent cycle of struggles, from anti-globalization to anti-war to Occupy Wall Street, has involved the fetishization of local spaces, immediate actions, transient gestures, and particularisms of all kinds. Rather than undertake the difficult labor of expanding and consolidating gains, this form of politics has focused on building bunkers to resist the encroachments of global neoliberalism. In so doing, it has become a politics of defense, incapable of articulating or building a new world. For any movement that struggles to escape neoliberalism and build something better, these folk political approaches are insufficient. In their place, this book sets out an alternative politics, one that seeks to take back control over our future and to foster the ambition for a world more modern than capitalism will allow. The utopian potentials inherent in 21st century technology cannot remain bound to a parochial capitalist imagination, they must be liberated by an ambitious left alternative. Neoliberalism has failed, social democracy is impossible, and only an alternative vision can bring about universal prosperity and emancipation. Articulating and achieving this better world is the fundamental task of the left today. To what extent are modern day free market economies actually free? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, they're free for some, I think, is the is the answer to that, right? Um, when most of us go into and unfree for a lot of others, I should add, that's the sort of, you know, that's the other side of that. I think when most of us um, go into work, we experience that as a huge realm of unfreedom for the vast majority of us who uh, who do work for a living once we enter, you know, the, the shop, the factory, the whatever, the hospital school. Um, it's what the boss says goes. Um, the boss, on the other hand, has a lot of freedom. I mean, the argument we're, uh, we're making in the book is that um, a lot of the world's biggest, or not, not a lot, most of the world's biggest corporations are huge spheres of economic planning, that sort of old bogeyman um, of the right that the right has used as a cudgel 
um, against the left. You know, this is, uh, if you try to consciously control the economy, it'll never work. And we'll probably get into that, get into that later. Well, it turns out that once you enter the sort of four walls of the, of the firm, of the corporation, um, it's a giant plan, planned system where the managers, and that's what, where I think, you know, that division in freedom exists, that there's, uh, a lot of freedom for managers and bosses to set plans within certain limits. Obviously, the market imposes some uh, some limits on that, but there's a lot of sort of rational planning. But for the vast majority of people, for workers, uh, it's a realm of, of unfreedom where, you know, our sort of shared human capacity for decision-making um, is completely not even underutilized, but largely unutilized. Um, and I think that's something that we set out to challenge uh, to challenge in the book. Uh, yeah. Lee, um, so to what extent do we live in a planned economy? To what extent is the idea of the free market just a mystification then, building on that? Well, it, the um, the economy as a whole is not a planned economy, but uh, within uh, these very, very large um, entities, as, as Mihao was saying, they are entirely planned. This is fascinating for us because uh, the argument that we have from uh, from the right is that the market is always consistently the the optimum way of allocating uh, goods and services, uh, I, but internally, uh, as as Mihao said, they're entirely planned. What's fascinating with with Walmart is it's the largest corporation in the world. Um, it has the largest number of employees. It, it would be the it's the third largest enterprise after uh, the People's Liberation Army and uh, the Pentagon. If it were an economy. Uh, it would be not in the G20, but on the size of a Sweden or Switzerland. Wow! Um, it you know it's it's on the on the scale of it, uh, you know slightly smaller, but uh, on the scale of the Soviet Union at the height of its um, you know in the 1970s uh, before sort of you know uh, stagnation sets in. Uh, so that's really interesting because if the you know the the one of the best arguments that the right ever mounted against the left against socialism was that um, the price signal in the market um, basically captures uh, an infinitude of information uh, within supply chains. Uh, not just that, but also discovers as a mechanism of discovery of information. And that if uh, we want to avoid all of the problems with market exchange in terms of the in growth of inequality, irrational production, and so on and so forth, and replace it with, um, with planning, uh, you would have to have this army of bureaucrats that uh, would not be anywhere near as good as capturing all that information. Um, and uh, that would lead to a mismatch between supply and demand at, uh, on, a, on a gross scale that would produce uh, significant shortages, in turn chaos. The only way that you could sort of um, grapple with that chaos would be some sort of authoritarianism. And then bada bing, bada boom, you have the Soviet Union. That was sort of the historical argument. Um, it, it's, it's a really bloody good argument. The trick is that if that were true, then Walmart shouldn't work. Walmart shouldn't exist. Because it, if it is a, an, uh, an internally, an entirely planned economy, uh, yes, it exists with a sea of prices, but internally it's entirely planned. Um, what makes it work um, uh, compared to the Soviet Union? Um, so yeah, it's, um, we, we should take some lessons from this in that uh, basically it shows that planning works. However, it's authoritarian planning rather than democratic planning. Maybe we can get into that in a little bit. Yeah, so we, we're obviously talking about the firm to an extent. We're talking yeah. about Co Coase, is it Coase's Ro theorem? Yeah, yeah. Ro Ronald Coase. Ronald yeah. Coase. Um, he sort of stumbles upon this really in the 20s, the 30s, 
Mm-hmm. I was talking about this a few weeks ago to a gentleman who writes The Economist. He came on. Right. Um, and he was talking about, you know, just intervention in free markets. And obviously it's the paradigmatic example. And it, it's really striking how few people actually on the left engage with this issue where, you know, mm-hmm. we have this mystification. Any intervention in free markets will create a mismatch of resources, create disequilibriums, etc. Like you say, the absolute heartbeat of modern economies are firms which don't operate like that. Now, is there any is there any countervailing account that could come from somebody who's defending the status quo who might say, well, so what? That's irrelevant. We already know about coasts, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the traditional argument has always been, but ultimately, they still rely on prices. Right. Right. So it doesn't matter how big they get, they're still existing, like Lee said, in this sort of sea of prices. And that's and that's the bit that delivers sort of useful information or crucial, crucially useful information right. um, to them. Uh, and I think the counter argument there is that we see increasingly, and this is where sort of, I think today differs from the 1930s when which was the last time when the left and the right were sort of hashing, hashing this out, is that we do have um, an increase in information technology that basically you know, produces this total surfeit of information, of various kinds of useful information. And it's, I, I just think it's, you know, it's a sort of poverty of imagination to think that um, this is the one method of finding a way to basically align you know, sort of social goals with individual or lower level goals. That's ultimately the rights argument. That you need some sort of mechanism that'll align, you know, what do we want to do as a society with what do individuals or individuals sort of units like firms do? Uh, and I think throughout history, we've seen that there's different ways of doing that. And especially now when we have information, you know, again, Hay- uh, one very small thing, Hayek um, had this sort of semi uh, mystical quote where at one point he calls uh, prices action at a distance. And I I'll kind of find it funny reading that today, you know, in 2019, when each of us has a, or most of us have a smartphone in our pockets. And, you know, this idea that this like gee whiz action at a distance um, happens through the price system just seems kind of quaint. I mean, is it fair to say actually that the idea of markets functioning through prices like that is in itself a form of machine control? Because you've got Paul Mason recently in his book, you know, Clear Bright Future. And he says, we have all these existential quandaries about, oh, would we ever allow an AI to run society? Well, we already delegate vast yeah. amount of sort of ethical decision making to well actually this computer, C- computer says no except it's not the computer it's the market uh so is that is that a fa- is that a fair sort of assessment and then I, I want to ask you about the socialist calculation debate uh i'll be i'll be quick i think that's overall generally fair i mean i think there's i think there's maybe a bit more to it but generally yes this is something this is a mechanism a, and a lot of the a lot of the Austrians did, in a way, refer to it as a computer, but one that's able to deal sort of with indeterminacy. So that's the one thing that I would add, that the, the right really sees this as a specific kind of computer that doesn't take, you know, like a set program, mm-hmm. but is one that's able to uh, deal very well in a dynamic environment. But overall, I think, I think that's a very good way of looking at it um, and of, again, demystifying some of that some of this, you know, ideo- ideology around the around the free market and around sort of freedom.
Let's start with a history of automation in general. If you're willing to go back far enough, humanity's evolution has always been directly related to our ability to mechanize and improve upon our physical abilities with tools. Our bodies and societies have progressed alongside and as a direct result of our ability to create objects that make our lives easier, that allow us to produce and consume more efficiently and in greater quantities. At first, it was simple handheld tools made of stone, then crude metals, until eventually we started truly automating basic tasks by powering the first primitive machines with flowing water, steam, and finally, fossil fuels. We continued innovating, creating ever more complex instruments, until they moved beyond completing simple tasks and started dealing with abstract concepts, the same way our brains can. Very quickly, we get to something like proper automation, machines doing things on their own. Specifically, we get to automation under our current economic model, capitalism. Since the origins of modern capitalism coincide roughly with the beginning of industrialization in Britain, that's where we'll start. At its birth, industrialization radically changed many things. The new machines of the industrial era were nothing like the tools that had dominated the history of humanity. They were bigger, more complex, and they needed several people with very particular roles just to function properly. They could produce like no human ever could, and with ever-decreasing levels of human involvement. Right away, this made a massive difference in the working arrangements of most people. From individual shops and farms, industrial machines and factories brought hundreds away from their personal businesses under a single factory roof in increasingly densely populated cities. Supervised by a growing but tightly guarded class of wealthy individuals, workers from neighboring regions were brought into factories, where they no longer had control over the process of production. Their roles became specialized, repetitive, and dull. Work for a wage became compulsory for more and more of the population as the concept of poverty became legally tangible. Capitalism had begun, and at its core were the new machines. With this new social model came new relationships and interest groups, the owner class and the working class, those who owned the factories and the machinery, and those who sold their time and energy to them. While this is going on, machines are growing in their power. They do more, produce more, and take up an ever greater chunk of the responsibilities of workers. And this starts creating problems. Some of the first observers of this era, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, were quick to realize the impact that the ever more capable steam-powered machines would have on this new labor force. They saw, of course, the slums and depths of poverty that these industrial towns had created. But more than that, they saw a new form of power emerge. Automation subjected workers to invisible pressures within the workplace when, as production processes became more automated, human workers had to adapt to the pace set by machines, a pace determined by the capitalist who manufactured and implemented them. Unsurprisingly, this feature of automation hasn't disappeared under more advanced stages of capitalism. Take Amazon warehouses, where workers who are entirely reliant on now fully automated systems have to adapt their working speed to the inhumane rate of maximally optimized robots. Workers lose their independence and their very humanity when they have to complete tasks in 11 seconds or less and take no breaks, otherwise they threaten to disrupt a long production chain of which they are only a minor part. Automation breeds its own forms of surveillance, and by that token, its own discipline. The consequences are not just a loss of independence, but also a profound feeling of alienation, personal anguish, and the all-too-common injuries at a full 10 per 100 workers in Amazon factories specifically. And that's not all. For Marx, this power was only one side of technological growth. Machines gave the capitalists much more. 
For starters, these machines made for a perfectly exploitable employee. And it's pretty obvious why. A machine demands no wages. It doesn't demand adequate working conditions, reasonable hours, or bathroom breaks. A machine costs what it costs to buy and maintain, and every single penny of its 24-hour workday afterwards goes back to the capitalist. It's a perfect arrangement. At least, that's the way it seems. One Dime covers this aspect of automation extensively in his video. Of course, this arrangement has its own consequences. Suddenly faced with a new machine that performs better, cheaper, or faster, an entire workforce might be more easily undermined. In theory, its value plummets to the robot standards, allowing the owner class to threaten mass unemployment and eroding whatever resistance workers had created with their collective power. If the employee is not entirely replaced, their job either becomes more menial and alienating or more brutal and unprofitable. Workers are pitted against the machines they are now directly threatened by, rather than the capitalist class, which can shield itself behind the values of technological innovation. Today, this process is happening across all sectors of the economy. Factory jobs were of course the first to go, but they were soon followed by many service and white-collar jobs. As AI progresses, even highly specialized tasks are delegated to machines, taking with them jobs for which humans are no longer the cheapest option. And this poses a dilemma for workers. Asking for higher wages is both good and necessary, especially as living costs everywhere go up. But it puts them and their industries at greater risk of their labor being automated. You can't bargain when someone is holding all the chips. So, rather than settling for low wages out of fear of automation, we should embrace automation, demand higher wages, or perhaps some form of universal basic income which will not only be necessary for workers, but may even be necessary for capitalism itself to function. In this third future of socialism with scarcity, then, people no longer have to work nearly as much as to survive, yet people are also not free to consume as much as they like. And even though capitalistic economic classes will be presumably abolished, some kind of government will probably be required to distribute resources, making pure communism, a stateless society, an unlikely option. Given the need to determine and maintain stable levels of consumption and thus set prices, the state can't entirely weather away just yet, as it does in the communist scenario. And where there is scarcity, there will surely be some sort of political conflict, even though if it is no longer the same class conflict. However, this form of socialism does not have to adopt the exact same systems as previously existing socialist countries did. We can learn from the drawbacks and the benefits. In addition to being sabotaged by catastrophic wars and economic sanctions, experiments like the USSR, Yugoslavia, Cuba, Vietnam, and China started off with significantly lower levels of development and did not have the access to the technology that exists today. Facing this underdevelopment, these countries resorted to modes of production that could be described as capitalistic, while having some form of socialist redistribution. Despite this, however, these systems were nevertheless able to drastically improve their societies. Just look at the development from before versus after the transition to socialism, if you even want to call it socialism, which is more a matter of semantic debate. 
The point is that different socioeconomic conditions lead to different outcomes. After all, Marx himself thought that communism would be impossible without first passing through the stage of capitalism, which he saw as a necessary evil that would exploit workers to death, but would develop the forces of production and create a lot of wealth, which could then be distributed and utilized for the common good during the transition to communism. With the exception of the exploited Global South, most of the Global North countries like America, Canada, and Western Europe are already highly developed and we are starting to have access to labor-saving technologies which can accelerate production while giving people more free time from work, which could potentially one day allow us to transition to the fourth and most promising future, communism, an egalitarian society with abundance. But as mentioned before, if a worsening climate crisis and disappointing results of space exploration make this possibility too late, then we can settle for a socialism where we are given life's basic necessities and more freedom from work, but still have a limitation as to how much we can consume. Maybe it won't be fully automated luxury communism, but maybe we can get a partially automated socialism. But assuming resources are not scarce and climate change is slightly ameliorated, or we happen to find an abundance of natural resources in outer space, then let's envision what a full communism with abundance could look like. Communism, egalitarianism, and abundance. It is already hard to escape the capitalist mind prison, but it is even harder to imagine what full communism could look like. The term fully automated luxury communism has been popularized by theorist Aaron Bastiani in his book of the same title. This book deserves a video of its own, and it has quite a lot of compelling insights and evidence despite what the goofy title might suggest. This might all sound like an impossible utopia, yet the trend of widespread automation could very well make this a possibility, or at the very least, allow us to start liberating people from work. We can try to envision a classless society of abundance that was envisioned by theorists like Karl Marx, a partially automated communism perhaps. A communist post-scarcity society would require a combination of labor-saving technologies with an alternative to the current unsustainable energy system that still exists today, which is limited by the physical scarcity and ecological destructiveness of fossil fuels. Once again, this is not a guarantee, but there are hopeful signs of progress. For instance, the cost of producing and operating solar panels has been falling dramatically over the past decade and based on their current trajectory, they will soon be cheaper than our current electricity sources. Now, the notion of post-work tends to confuse a lot of people. People often think about this issue in a very binary way, in which either we live in a society where we don't work at all, or we work in a society where we have to work just to survive and be entitled to life's basic necessities. And this really misses the point. In a post-scarcity society, it's not like all work would be abolished in the sense that we would all just sit around like sloths. As Karl Marx put it, labor would become not only a means of life, but life's prime want. People could just continue doing whatever activities, hobbies, and projects that they did out of their own will because they found them inherently fulfilling, not because of a needed wage. The profit motive is unnecessary, especially considering the degree to which many decisions about work are already driven by non-material incentives. Among those who are privileged enough to have the option, millions choose to go to graduate school, study degrees with little job prospects, become social workers, make music, make art, or start small organic farms, even when there are far more lucrative careers open to them. 
It is also worth noting that even this post-scarcity communist future would most likely still require some sort of human labor for certain occupations that can't be automated. We would most likely have to have a certain level of labor hours to complete in exchange for labor vouchers, which could then be used to purchase leisure products and services provided by small worker cooperatives, perhaps. Those who put in more labor time could get access to more labor vouchers, which they could then use to purchase more goods and services. Thus, while arbitrary economic classes would be abolished, there would not be an equality of outcome, which is essentially impossible. Rather, society would be formulated according to need and ability, from each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. Although there are many possible ways to allocate the necessary labor that a communist society would still need to do, I would recommend looking into the various theories of Michael Albert and Paul Cockshant, who hold different compelling ideas. The demise of wage labor may seem like a faraway dream today, but at one point American and European labor movements used to demand shorter working hours as opposed to just higher wages and employment. Workerism and the Protestant work ethic is an ideology that must be overcome. To get past wage labor economically, we must get past it socially. The idea of post-scarcity communism has been loosely represented in one of the most popular works of science fiction, Star Trek. Now keep in mind, even a post-scarcity communist world would still have its own conflicts and contradictions, rather than one in which we all live in perfect harmony and politics comes to a halt. There would probably be some sort of social hierarchies, probably based on reputation and clout. But if it's not a vision of a perfect society, this version of communism is at least a world in which conflict is no longer based on arbitrary classes and control over scarce resources and the means of production. It is a world in which not everything is decided by money. To conclude, these four different futures are useful to speculate about, but we might not necessarily only get one of them. We could get them all. And the author of the book, Four Futures, notes that there are paths that lead from one future to all of the others. And in many ways, aspects of all four of the futures are already partially here. But it's ultimately up to us, the masses, to build up the collective power and organization to fight for the futures that we desire. It is not a discussion of the technological revolution and automation without mentioning universal basic income, and for good reason, as in our and many others' opinion, it is one of the best potential solutions to the automation conundrum. In the simplest terms, UBI is about giving every member of society enough money to cover, as the name implies, the basics in life. This is not a new concept, with the idea of a state-run basic income going as far back as the 16th century in Sir Thomas More's book Utopia, which depicted a society in which every person receives a guaranteed income and is relieved of the burden of their essential needs. For what greater wealth can there be than cheerfulness, peace of mind, and freedom from anxiety? Moving forward a few centuries, what we now know as UBI has been championed from a diverse group of individuals of every profession, race, and political stance. From Martin Luther King Jr., Thomas Paine, Milton Friedman, Richard Nixon, Stephen Hawking, Alan Watts, the Pope, we can go on and on. The premise of a UBI has also inspired policy, with economist Milton Friedman's negative income tax. He held that the NIT would raise a poverty floor without negatively affecting the price system and market mechanisms. This would then go on to inspire the earned income tax credit from the Nixon administration in the 1970s, essentially a tax credit benefiting individuals who are earning a low or moderate income the most. 
After a relatively dormant few decades, it has only been since recently, 2015, where the UBI discussion has been picking up steam again, as it started to become a prominent talking point amongst technologists, such as many of those working in Silicon Valley and other tech hubs. This makes intuitive sense, as deep learning was starting to make rapid strides forward around this time period, and many in the industry were extrapolating forward and beginning to realize the long-term impacts in terms of automation, which then led tech CEOs such as Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, and Bill Gates to talk about UBI, thereby raising public awareness. Beyond awareness, in our opinion, when UBI's policy really began to spread through the mainstream consciousness was during the presidential run of Andrew Yang. While he did go on to lose that race, Yang and his team truly understood the impacts of automation and broke it down in a concise and easy to understand way for the general public, while also highlighting the need for a UBI, or as they called it, the freedom dividend of $1,000 a month, translating to $12,000 a year, just around the US poverty line. With the origins of universal basic income understood, we can see that UBI has taken on a few distinct forms in different historical and geographical contexts. However, the core defining characteristics of it always remain the same. 1. A UBI is periodic, in other words, a recurring payment, for instance, every month as opposed to a one-off grant. 2. A UBI is paid in cash, allowing recipients to convert their benefits into whatever they would like. 3. A UBI is paid per individual person versus per household based. And 4. A UBI is truly universal and unconditional, paid to every member of society, and not targeted to a specific population. A universal basic income following these core principles intuitively makes sense. When you're a shareholder for a profitable company, you expect a dividend. And likewise, as citizens of countries with GDPs worth trillions, which are only set to increase as automation increases societal productivity, a UBI can be considered a dividend of this productivity to the populace. A UBI would also value much work today that, while important, society doesn't monetarily value. For instance, stay-at-home parents and caretakers. People in these roles work just as hard if not harder than those in typical full-time roles and are needed for a society to function. However, they are not currently monetarily compensated for their work. In the age of automation, as more jobs are lost to technological change and as society gets more productive, no one should have the burden of worry about covering basic living expenses, such as rent, food, electricity, internet, and so on. While this all sounds great in theory, the benefits of a UBI can also be backed up through real-world testing. Since the 1900s, there have been many pilot tests for a UBI, from the United States, Canada, Kenya, Finland, and India to list a few. And these tests are only increasing in frequency as more countries, private entities, and nonprofits are entering the space. From the tests that have already been completed, many come to the same conclusion, that a UBI boosted recipient's mental, physical, and financial well-being, decreased the consumption of vices such as tobacco and alcohol, and led to modest improvements in employment. To give more concrete results, an Ontario Canada's UBI pilot project of 4,000 subjects over the course of 17 months with a $1,000 basic income, 79% of subjects reported better physical and 83% better mental well-being, 50% reported a decrease in drug use, and while 17% did leave employment once basic income payments commenced, most significantly, nearly half of those subjects who stopped working during the pilot program returned to school or university to upskill for future employment. It is worth noting, many argue the less than expected increases and sometimes decreases in employment are due to the efficacy of these tests. In Ontario's case, the decrease could be attributable to conditions about non-trial earned income, in which basic income payments would be reduced by 50 cents for every dollar of earned income. Efficacy issues of other trials include but are not limited to small sample sizes, short time frames, and too low of an amount of monthly payments to actually provide the stability of a real UBI.
as a quick refresher, a socialist economy is one in which the means of production, meaning factories, machines, farms, and so on, are owned in common rather than by private individuals. This can vary quite a lot in practice, but the basic idea is that the economy is subject to democratic practice, not the whims of deeper pockets. In general, socialist economies are characterized by the provision of basic services to everyone. Food, water, shelter, and medicine for all are the greatest priorities of this economic model, rather than profit, which often comes from gatekeeping these essential needs. In this kind of system, automation looks very different. While automation under any system can bring improvements in the quality of life for all, under a socialist economy, it does not do so at the expense of the security of the individual. You might lose your job to a more productive machine, but that won't suddenly throw you into your savings and threaten to kick you out of your home. Quite the contrary. In practice, this can mean any number of things. Where innovations in medicine or agriculture are developed, they are no longer held hostage by intellectual property patents so that only a few people can gain access and only for the highest prices. Vaccines and other life-saving innovations don't have to be life-saving and profitable to be worthwhile. They can just be life-saving. This is innovation under a very wide lens, but automation specifically works in just the same way. And the best way to prove that is to look at how automation affects work under a socialist economy. Whereas the capitalist exploits the advancements of technology to pit the workers against themselves, bringing down their wages, working conditions, or kicking them out of their job entirely, a socialist society has no such pressure to exert. Work being taken out of human hands is just that, no strings attached. Even if automation does not abolish all work, in capitalist or socialist economies alike, it will definitely reduce the amount of work we have to do. Whereas a capitalist system responds to this with unemployment, worsening working conditions, lower wages, or even meaningless jobs that only serve to increase profits without improving anything, a democratic organization of the economy can simply grant the worker more free time. Picture your average day at work when automation has all but taken over. With fewer responsibilities and fewer hours of human work needed, divided across more people whose jobs are also largely taken care of, a workday could be just a few hours long, if that. A work week, just a few days. You could return home after a short day, knowing that your needs are taken care of, allowing you to spend your free time whichever way you like. More time means you can take up more hobbies, continue your education, or simply enjoy your life a whole lot more. You could take pleasure in activities that make you more fulfilled, or choose to spend your time working in your community, teaching classes, helping to plant trees, fixing potholes, whatever you want. In our current society, this kind of freedom is a luxury awarded only to the lucky few. Under its automated extreme, that same freedom is lost to meaningless work, to fatigue, and to desperately trying to stay afloat. In a system where your survival isn't directly tied to the hours you work, automation is a blessing, both for you and everyone else. Automation grants you more freedom rather than punishing you for simply existing in a society with scientific progress. It could allow us to move beyond our basic necessities and start climbing up our hierarchy of needs the world over, to start pursuing what really interests us in life, to take up educational, artistic, innovative, or creative pursuits that we would normally not be able to under capitalism without taking immense personal risks or being born into similarly immense privilege. The truth is, we've been waiting for this for decades. Back in the 1930s, economist John Maynard Keynes predicted that technological advancements would allow his grandkids' generation to only work for 15 hours a week, long before automation and artificial intelligence showed us the extent to which human labor could be replaced. 
The only reason we aren't there yet is the unnecessary capitalist obsession with always extracting more profit. But we can improve our lives without that suicidal greed. And so long as we continue to ignore that fact, our future is clear. Speaking of payments, this is one of the largest reasons a widespread UBI hasn't taken off in the decades it has been in discussion. There are valid concerns on how to fund an initiative of its scale. Using the USA as an example, and assuming a $1,000 UBI, that would be on the order of 2 to $3 trillion a year. Do we dare utter the dreaded T-word as a solution? Whenever there is talk of taxes, it comes with many interesting connotations. In terms of a robot or automation tax, it is an even more contentious topic, as many believe it is disincentivizing innovation. However, the argument of a robot tax is not to prevent innovation, but slightly slow down the speed of automation adoption as we figure out how to transition into this new economy. In fact, currently there exists incentivization in the exact opposite direction. A business that pays a worker $100 pays $30 in taxes, but a business that spends $100 on equipment such as robotics pays only $3 dollars in taxes. The 2017 Taxes, Cuts, and Jobs Act lower taxes on purchases so much that you can actually make money buying equipment. In other words, the USA in some ways is paying companies to automate. By introducing a robot tax, we can even the playing field so to speak, so that we can more gracefully transition into an automated society. There could even be an incentivization to retrain or upskill employees by introducing tax credits on the robot tax. This tax could also slow down or prevent what we like to call toxic automation, in which a company's sole purpose is to automate as rapidly as possible without any regard for its employees. What is commonly seen in many gig employment companies such as Uber, in which they are not only paying below a fair market wage, but also use those excess profits to fund autonomous vehicle initiatives, with the goal to replace those very same workers. In addition to the robot tax, there are many other methods of taxation and talks as well on the technology sphere, which can help curb or rein in companies on the more unethical end of the spectrum and give back to society what they have taken. For instance, the data tax or data dividend as it is often called. Data is often referred to as a new oil due to how valuable it is, especially for deep learning algorithms. It is also one of the progress traps of the information age, as it could be used to build better, smarter applications, but often at the trade-off of our privacy. While this is a topic for another video, the key takeaway is that our data is worth billions. The data brokerage industry alone is estimated to be worth nearly half a trillion dollars, with near 50% of the revenue coming directly from selling consumer data. And these numbers don't even take into account companies made to solely profit off our data such as Facebook, which made $86 billion in 2020. Taxing for storing excessive quantities of data, transference fees of sending data between different brokers, or a host of other methods could be another way to collect revenue from companies who are benefiting from our data, and in many cases using it to automate away jobs. The robot and data tax are two potential policies that can ensure increased production due to automation and technological change is not just captured by a select few at the top, but rather is spread across society by funding a universal basic income. Furthermore, to the aforementioned sources, funding from a UBI can come from various other tax or budget adjustments, which in many cases is dependent on the values of the society implementing a basic income. For instance, funding could come from a value-added tax, VAT, which some nations already have, reducing the defense budget, a wealth tax, inheritance taxes, fees on financial derivatives contracts, and so on. Beyond taxes, another substantial funding source was best stated by Milton Friedman about the negative income tax, but also applies to UBI. That being, a UBI would reduce the paternalistic and intrusive state bureaucracy required to decide who among the poor merits assistance. 
As you can see, by removing the excessive amounts of bureaucracy in our current aid system about who and how they receive aid, tens to hundreds of billions of dollars could be saved that could go straight into funding a universal basic income. A UBI as opposed to welfare programs would additionally end up motivating individuals on these systems to pursue other job opportunities, volunteer work, etc. With welfare as it presently is, each program comes with its own set of stipulations to receive money. Take as an example disability income. If you break those conditions by, say, getting a part-time job or freelance work, you can end up making less money than if you had just stayed on welfare. As the name implies, with a UBI, it is universal, meaning there are no stipulations, and an individual will not be penalized for looking to earn extra income. To transition gracefully from our current welfare system, many have suggested making a UBI opt-in, in which case you would forgo any welfare program you are currently enrolled in. While the funding sources we have discussed thus far would work in making a UBI economically viable, there is a much simpler option. Quantitative easing, or put more simply, money printer, go bird. Now on a more serious note, whenever money printing is brought up, it does bring with it inflation fears. However, automation by its very nature is deflationary, so if we QE proportional to the jobs automation displaces to fund a UBI, these forces could balance out. To add to this, this pandemic has shown that governments around the world have the ability to print trillions of dollars when push comes to shove. Unfortunately, much of this money has gone directly to corporations, with what was told to us is that it would trickle down throughout the economy. In reality, this money has only gone into inflating asset prices and the coffers of executives and shareholders, thereby widening the wealth gap and increasing societal inequality. If instead this money was provided to the general populace, rather than a wealth ceiling, it could serve as a floor for the new economy. With people no longer burdened by their basic needs, they could afford that car repair they've needed, daycare, little league sports, and so on. Put another way, money provided by UBI actually trickles up through society, benefiting people who need it the most. There is real-world data to back this claim up. Referring back to Ontario's UBI pilot project, there was an uptick in economic activity, with individuals paying for education and student loans, purchasing new eyeglasses, paying for transportation costs such as bus fares to work rather than walking, purchasing necessary items like fresh produce, hospital parking passes, winter clothes they couldn't previously afford, and so on. One couple even used the money to keep their business afloat. Furthermore, an IPS study supports this take, in which for every $1 given to high-income earners results in $0.39 cents added back to the economy, whereas for every $1 given to wage earners, it results in $1.21 added to the economy. In economics, this is referred to as a multiplier effect. Another area we would see this multiplier effect would be in an increase in entrepreneurship. Currently, entrepreneurship is not as prevalent because the last thing someone who is struggling to pay for basic living expenses thinks is I'm going to start a business or a nonprofit. What is more common is that once one acquires financial security and thereby more risk-taking capacity, they can start a business. With the safety net provided by a well-designed UBI, more organizations could come about, with some focused on tackling global problems and others focused on the local community and hiring people, thereby spurring economic activity and generating wealth. While on the subject of wealth generation, an important note to make here is that we have been looking at implementing a UBI from a purely capitalistic, GDP-oriented perspective, when in actuality, we need to re-envision this economic structure entirely for the technological revolution. Finally, regarding states and markets, what can socialists do in the here and now? What sort of what sort of demands can be made uh, if you're a Bernie supporter or AOC follower on Twitter or a Labour Party member here in the UK or anywhere else in the world and you're a socialist and you're engaged in electoral democratic politics or even non-electoral democratic politics, what, what can you learn from this book and then say to people that hold public office, we should be doing this? 
I think a lot of the things that, at least when I think of, for example, Bernie in the US, a lot of things that they're doing are already on the lines of this. For example, I think the Medicare for all demand in the US as sort of, in a way, absurd, it seems, say, from Canada or the, or the UK, where we've had socialized health care um, for, for 50 years, uh, even though it's not perfect, even though it's not democratic, even though it is sort of, you know, this kind of paternalistic nationalization at times, at least it is sort of a decommodified, democratically, in some way decided over sector. Uh, I think that demand um, is, is a really good one. And then, for example, in the UK and other countries, I think looking at big sectors of the economy that could be decommodified, um, where there are already existing movements to to start to do this. Um, Pharmacare is another one, and looking at actually the production of, of pharmaceuticals, which uh, we don't have time to go into, but there's huge, huge you know problems with with markets um, allocating resources for for what gets produced, especially in terms of antibiotic resistance, all this kind of yeah. stuff. Um, childcare, transit, you mentioned already. Um, so I think on that sort of very very high level social scale, like here's a sector of the economy that we could. Um, run democratically in in the sort of very abstract, um, overarching way. Um, but I think at the same time, and I hope that comes through in the book, um, looking at, you know, that sort of low level of democracy, how can we democratize workplaces? And I think that's where UK labor um, is doing uh, a really good job under Corbyn at looking at, at both of those, right? What are alternative models of, of ownership for particular enterprises, particular projects, and ones that give people more of a say, um, more of a capacity to participate in that planning at the sort of shop, you know, factory, whatever, uh, whatever level. And hope, you know, and then you kind of you have those synth- those pinchers that uh, that are moving in, in, in both directions from the bottom up and from the um, and from the top down. And I mean, and we talked about central banks a lot. I think doing that job of demystifying these big institutions, repoliticizing them and cutting against that really strong uh, neoliberal argument that I think is falling apart slowly, that these are just like outside the realm of politics, that this is just like pure dry economics kind of working itself out. Mm. Um, I think being being really brave and forward about saying, no, we can have different social goals, you know, right at the heart of monetary policy or at the heart of these like large um, institutions that already have a coordinating function but that have been effectively depoliticized. So I think there's a whole host. In short, there's a whole host of things because I think we, as we try to show, the planning is really everywhere in our economy. It's just making it explicit and making it participatory, making us actually be the agents of it rather than small groups of people. The two examples I would give uh, concretely would be one, yes, I do really want to underscore the the scale of the threat that we face from uh, antimicrobial resistance. Uh, it was fascinating a few weeks ago to see the UK's uh, antimicrobial resistance czar um, uh, moot, uh, sorry, did discuss the idea of uh, potentially nationalizing uh, big pharma in order to resolve uh, this problem. Um, uh, you, you, viewers might not be aware, but um, you know, basically 30, uh, 35 years ago, the late major pharmaceutical companies got out of the business of doing any sort of research and development or even commercialization of uh, new classes of antibiotic. Research continues to happen, but at uh, 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 public universities or government labs, which do not have the money to to, to engage in clinical trials. Um, and uh, so at, fast, this the, the UK uh, antimicrobial resistance czar happens to be a former um, uh, executive with Goldman Sachs. I mean, I, it, um, and his, his argument is that they ne- might need to be nationalized. 
uh, because the um, uh, antibiotics are simply uh, insufficiently profitable. If you um, uh, you know take a, a course of antibiotics for five six uh, weeks, at the end of that, you want the infection gone. You don't. You're not going to be taking a drug every day for the rest of your life as you would with some sort of chronic disease, which is where the real money is. Um, and that the scale of the threat there is, uh, is sort of undermining modern medicine. It is probably um, even more uh, of an existential threat to the, our modern way of life, um, throwing back to Victorian sort of um, uh, types of medicine. Uh, most of modern medicine depends upon a background of antimicrobial protection. Mm. Um, even the, uh, diagnostics uh, sometimes uh, uh, do that. So it really is uh, very existentially threatening. Um, and that would be, a, I would add that as a sort of number one. In fact, I, I kind of wish that there was as much of a, a left movement around antimicrobial resistance as there is around climate change. It is, it, and it's, it's happening much faster. With uh, the Green Deal, I'm very excited about that framing because for and um, it is about planning now. It's talking about infrastructure, um, state-led development, um, um, uh, full employment. Uh, it's uh, and it leaps over the the two sort of main frames framings of the of the climate threat that we've had so far, which are both forms of capitalist realism. One is sort of like. Uh, uh, market mechanisms of carbon taxation or cap and trade uh, or um, uh, feed in tariffs, um, which end up, you know, neg- more negatively impacting uh, working uh, working people. On the other side, there's a sort of like personal, individual. Uh, what you know, what can I do? Can I, you know, travel? You know, fly less or whatever. And again, it's this sort of individualized, mm. uh, capitalist, realist uh, conception of 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 responsibility for this. Uh, the Green New Deal framing for the very first time, um, locates the real source of the problem of, um, of of market failure, of who is responsible, not as individuals, but a system, the market system. Some of the particular demands within it, I would like to see a little bit more robust. I think some, so I have some minor criticisms there. I'd like to see more engagement with trade unions from the get-go, where um, Green New Deal activists have, from the start, worked with uh, trade unions, they've had much more success mm. than the ones where uh, those areas where sort of activists or environmentalists have come up with their series of demands and never spoke mm. to trade unions. And and now there's some, re- you know, there's a number of trade unions who have actually been uh, protesting uh, the Green New Deal in California and elsewhere in the United States. Some some even some quite radical unions like the, the, uh, the uh, electrical workers. So uh, there needs to be a sort of finessing of that. But overall... The framing is absolutely an example of, of what we're talking about in terms of planning as a solution to climate change and raft of other um, uh, environmental issues rather than degrowth or individual consumption or uh, market mechanisms, cap and trade or whatever. It's interesting you mentioned the, um, uh, the pharmaceutical stuff because in my book I talk about a great disorder and all these crises. I don't talk about that one, but most people aren't aware of this. In 1900, yeah. the global causes, like leading cause of death globally, pneumonia, infectious influenza. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was all infections. Yeah. And we just take it for granted that yeah. increasingly causes of death will be dementia, cancer, yeah. stroke, age-related conditions. But the oh, it's one of the greatest adva- uh, humanitarian developments. Uh, it's, it, it is such a precious thing. It, it, you know, a price above rubies um, um, antibiotics and and they weren't patented. No. Fleming didn't patent yeah, yeah, penicillin, yeah, yeah. which is interesting. Oh, is yeah. yeah, absolutely. There's all sorts of lovely Comrade little Fleming. 
<laughs> all sorts of lovely um, uh, stories of decommod of sort of socialist ethoses of, of socialist values within the history of, of modern medicine. Um, and, you know, revival of that is, is absolutely necessary. We've just heard clips today, starting with the introduction of the book Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism and a World Without Work, Navarra Media challenged the arguments against a planned economy, Second Thought laid out what mass automation under capitalism would look like, One Dime explored the ideas of socialism under either scarcity or abundance, Futurology gave some historical context on universal basic income, Second Thought continued the discussion of a democratically controlled socialist economy. Futurology also looked at how to pay for UBI, and Novara Media continued their discussion about planned economies. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard more bonus clips from Novara Media getting deeper into the weeds. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. Now to wrap up, I don't really have the time or energy to say much today, which is actually right to the point because we're getting ready to uh, try to live some of the values discussed during today's show. It wasn't really planned, but it worked out nicely that this episode brings us right up to a vacation week. But not to worry, we have automated some hand-picked episodes from the archives to drop into your feed, so be on the lookout for those. In the meantime, we will not be working, not defining or valuing ourselves by our work, and if we're really lucky, hardly looking at the internet at all, and then we'll be back, refreshed and recharged, ready to face the absurdity that is 2024 anew. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave us a voicemail or send a text to 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and Ben for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships. You can join them by signing up today at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our impressively good and often funny bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. In addition to the warm and fuzzy feeling you get by knowing that your support helps the people who make this show go on vacation every once in a while. You'll find that link to sign up in the show notes, along with a link to join our Discord community, where you can also continue the discussion. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.